On Resurrection Sunday morning, we invited you to write your short testimony. I once was, but now I am. And I want to read a few more of those again this morning. Um, we have about 200 people who came forward and who uh, laid these brief testimonies here at the foot of the cross. Uh, one said this, I once was suicidal, but now I am But now I know who I live for, Jesus Christ, my Savior. I once was living in self-hatred, but now I am living in self-acceptance and joy because I know who I am in Christ. I once was dead in gossip, lying, fear, anxiety, and hatred, but now I am free and alive in Christ and no longer bound to my sin. I once was longing to be loved, but now I am loved and cherished by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I was once in a void, wandering with no foundation, but now I am grounded in him and full of joy for his abiding, everlasting grace. I once was a person with no value, but now I am one that God has given great value. Amen. Lord, we thank you for each and every testimony in this room. We thank you for these words that remind us of the work that you're doing. And God, we pray that you now would speak to us through your word, that you would challenge us, uh, that you again would meet us where we are, and that you would make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had that experience where um, you just miss out on something that everyone else got to experience? Um, My wife had one of those experiences a few years ago. We were at a Detroit Tigers baseball game, and um, (laughs) and you know, the score can be one to nothing, and I'm just glad to be at a baseball game, but it's not necessarily the case for everybody. And uh, it had been kind of a slower game. It was, I think, three to one. Uh, the bad guys were winning. And, <laughs> and it was the eighth inning. And um, I think Gloria was just maybe a year or so old. And Katie had to, to take Gloria to, to get a diaper change, I think. And um, Detroit got a hit, and then a walk, and then a home run. <laughs> It was a slow game, and Katie was out doing something else, and I imagine she could hear all the, the cheers. Um, she missed it. We have a story today about someone who missed out on something. John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. Now Thomas called Didymus, that is the twin, was one of the twelve, he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. 
Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In our sermon last week, we heard of Jesus' appearance to his disciples on Resurrection Sunday evening. Uh, They were in the upper room, the doors were locked, and Jesus appeared to them. Peace be with you, and he showed them his hands and his side. And, of course, they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord, but Thomas was missing. We don't know where he was. Maybe he was out for a walk thinking about all of the events of the day. He's heard Mary Magdalene, who's come and said that the tomb is empty, and I've seen Jesus there in the garden. Maybe he was out getting bread for dinner. We don't know why he wasn't there, but he wasn't there, and he missed it. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Thomas? Of all of the events over the course of that week, watching his Lord be arrested and hung up on a cross and then watching him die and then having just the agony of Friday night and Saturday and then all day Sunday, this confusion about things that are going on. And now all of his friends, these ones who have, who have, he has walked with the last few years now have all had this experience of seeing Jesus, at least so they say, but he wasn't there. He missed it, and so he doubts, and Thomas's response to them has become famous. Unless I touch the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And Thomas's words here are very forceful. Okay, it's not just I want to I touch his side. It's like, I, unless I shove my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe it. So Thomas has become known as, as Doubting Thomas. He does doubt, but, but later, after he sees Jesus, he gives the most complete confession of anyone in any of the Gospels. My Lord and my God. John uses this story of Thomas really to to illustrate what his goal was of his entire gospel. I read John's thesis statement of his entire gospel. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Thomas is the final illustration of those who believe in what a confession in Jesus sounds like. My Lord and my God. So why was it that Jesus chose to show up at a time when Thomas wasn't there? It doesn't really seem fair in some ways. It it seems almost a little bit cruel that Thomas would be the only one for a week who would live in doubt and despair, wondering if maybe his friends had gone crazy, doubting, hoping without hope, hoping for hope, just, ah, did this really happen? Why did Jesus decide to show up when Thomas wasn't there? 
Jesus could have waited another hour till Thomas showed up. He surely knew that Thomas wasn't there. God's design was to show us a man, one of the disciples, who was very much like us. A man who was very prone to doubt and to be skeptical, but a man who was also able to give a great confession. Isn't that like you? I know it's like me. A man who daily, it seems, has doubts. And yet, the same man who is able to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. Am I the only one? I didn't think so. In my own experience in the church, I've never really been very comfortable saying what I just said, expressing my own doubts, you know, especially even as a pastor. Sometimes I, I wonder if you all really knew what went on in my head, if um, you'd be setting up a search committee pretty soon. Thanks. seems to me that in the church we're very threatened by doubt. Threatened by the idea of doubt when it comes our way or threatened by the idea of doubt when we see it or hear it in a brother or sister. And very often we tell one another, sometimes in maybe subtle ways and maybe other times in very overt ways, that doubt is this great enemy and that should be avoided at all costs. That doubt is always a sign of weak faith. That doubt is always a sign that maybe you're not quite walking with Jesus as you should. That, that doubt maybe even be a sign of some kind of deep sin in your life. That if you have questions, you know, we really shouldn't ask those questions. And that the strength of our faith, that the strength of our faith is often judged by how certain we are in our minds and how many, how few questions we ask. That the strength of our faith is often judged by how certain we are and how few questions we have. And quite frankly, I find this strange for a group of people that has the book of Psalms right in the middle of their Bible. The Psalms are primarily a book of prayers written to God. Prayers written by his people that express the inner life and the inner thoughts of his people. This is written by people of faith. Prayers expressed to God. And what questions dominate the Psalms? God, why have you forgotten me? God, why do my enemies seem to triumph over me? God, are you there? In the Psalms, we as believers are given examples of prayer. In those examples of prayer, there are question after question, doubt after doubt being expressed in brutal honesty to God. I have read the Psalms more than any other book in the Bible. I bring them up constantly in my pastoral counseling with one another. And the primary characteristic of the Psalms is not certainty, but honesty. The primary characteristics of the prayers of the Psalms is not certainty, it is honesty. The Psalms are honest with feelings of pain. 
Honest with feelings of loneliness and isolation. Honest with feelings of hopelessness and lack of certainty. Honesty with ourselves and with God is, in my reading, one of the primary characteristics of the psalm writers, but it seems to me that sometimes we actually encourage one another to be dishonest with ourselves and with God. Don't ask those questions. Don't feel that way. It makes me feel uncomfortable about my faith. You're doubting. Maybe there's sin in your life. But the act of faith in the Psalms is not that there will always be certainty in our life of faith. The act of faith in the Psalms is coming to God in those doubts, in those hurts, in our anger, in our frustration, in our doubts about God. The Psalms teach us how to have doubts, how to have fears, and still to be in relationship with God in the midst of them. The life of the believer is characterized by certainty and doubt, which is why the Psalms have plenty of prayers with both of them in them. (laughs) Prayers of certainty. You are my God. I will triumph over my enemies. You are my shepherd. I shall not be in want. (laughs) And also doubts. Day and night, I lay on my bed in tears. Where are you, God? My bones are in agony. My enemies seem to win over and over again. Where are you? God, have you forgotten me? The Psalms tell us how to live as believers in both seasons of great certainty as well as seasons of doubt. I heard an illustration this past week that really, I think, resonated with me very well about kind of our misconception about faith. Because we often see faith and belief in the Christian life as having something to do with our own strength. And the illustration that was used was one of those, um, you know, you go to a carnival and there's one of those strength meters. You know, you have the guy who takes the mallet and just bangs it really hard. And kind of however hard, you know, the, the, however strong the person is, that's how far, you know, the little mallet or whatever that thing is. I don't know what you call that thing. You know, it goes up and rings the bell. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, you got the picture. Isn't that kind of how we think about our faith? That however strong we are, however strong we can like wield that mallet of faith, that's how strong our faith is. We judge our faith by how strong we are. I want to say to you this morning that it's better for you. It's better for all of us. To doubt out loud to yourself and to God, to your fellow brothers and sisters, than it is to ignore your doubt and just to pretend that it isn't there. To pretend, to pretend that you're swinging that mallet and banging that bell every single day when you're not. 
belief, faith in the Bible, what it means to have faith in the Bible has nothing to do with your strength and your certainty and everything to do with how willing you are to trust in God's strength. The Psalms suggest that when you come to God and offer him your honest questions, when you offer him your doubt and your hopelessness that you're actually exercising greater biblical faith because you are expressing faith that God can handle it. And that in that act of bringing it to God that you are seeking a real relationship with him, that you are wrestling with him in your pain. One of the earliest stories of God's identity with his people is the story of Jacob wrestling all night with God. And then Israel receives the name, one who wrestles with God. I had a friend of mine uh, who I was uh, counseling one day, and he was sharing with me that in his relationship with his mom for his entire life, he has just really struggled, and they've just kind of always been at odds. And maybe you're like that with one of your parents, just always been at odds. And and I, I was trying to figure out just kind of what to say to him to kind of help him kind of get along with his mom. And I said, I said, well, maybe you need to just kind of, just kind of ignore some of the things that she says or does to you and just kind of, kind of let it run off like a water off a duck's back. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, no, she's my mom. And I realized at that moment that, that Brian knew something about relationships that I didn't. That for me, in many ways, relationships was just kind of like keeping the peace. But for him, relationships often meant struggle and wrestling with one another until there was true agreement with one another. Jacob was given the name Israel, one who wrestles with God. Not one who pretends that everything is okay. Not one who pretends that there are no doubts. Now, there are few of you, a few of you in this room who have no idea what I'm talking about this morning. There are a few of you in this room who have been given this extra measure of God's grace. Paul says in Corinthians that some believers are given the spiritual gift of faith. Not saving faith. All believers have that kind of faith, but an extra measure of faith where you just know that you know that you know that you know that you know, and there isn't these doubts that come into your life. And if that's you this morning, praise God. He has given you that gift, and the rest of us need your words of encouragement and your example of faith. But I also want you to remember that it's a gift that God gave to you. It wasn't something that you were clever enough to figure out or strong enough to hold. It's a gift that God's given to you. And also wants you to remember this morning as you're hearing your pastor be very honest with his own doubts, uh, to remember Jude verse 22. It very simply says, be merciful to those who doubt. I love that. Be merciful to those who doubt. History has come to call Thomas Doubting Thomas. And I want to show here for a moment that he was not alone in his doubt. Jesus predicted that he would rise from the dead. The prediction was known by many. It was so well known, in fact, that um, the 
the Romans actually had guards stationed at Jesus' tomb so that no one could steal the body and then claim later that it had been, that he had risen from the dead. So this prediction was widely known, and yet on Resurrection Sunday morning, the empty tomb was not enough for them to believe. Mary Magdalene looked at Jesus and thought he was the gardener. Jesus had to reveal himself and convince her in a way that Jesus was, that he was real. Uh, It says that John looked into the empty tomb and he believed, but he's still there on Sunday evening in fear with the rest of his brothers wrestling with what's going on. All of them heard Jesus say he would rise, but none of them seemed to really believe. All of them doubted in some way. It's not only Thomas who was a doubter. All the disciples were doubters. And in order for them to believe that Jesus actually did what he said he would do, they had to see his nail-pierced hands and his wounded side. So I think we should let Thomas off the hook a little bit. Because as we're going to see in a moment, the story of Thomas is not in the Bible because of his doubt. The story of Thomas is in the Bible because of his confession. He is believing Thomas. Thomas was not alone in his doubt, and I hope that the other disciples were gracious to Thomas during that entire week of doubt and uncertainty. I hope that they remembered their own doubt. Thomas was not alone in his doubt, and neither are you. Maybe you do look around other people in the church and you wonder why they can be so certain. Maybe you feel like Thomas. It seems like everyone around you is so certain. It seems like they live in a world that is entirely different than you. They see a world that is black and white, and you see a world that is gray. You're unsure. You're uncertain. You believe in Jesus. You have placed your faith in Jesus. You have set your feet on the solid rock of Jesus. But you find, like that disciple, I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. So I say to you again this morning, if that is you, it is better for you to doubt out loud than it is to be quiet and to pretend. The Psalms and the whole Bible invite you to wrestle with God with your questions. And I want to suggest to you that there are some benefits that come from doubt. Benefits that come from doubt. You can label this part of the sermon, the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. The first thing I think that ways that doubt benefits us is that it reminds us that we are frail. It calls us to be humble. The Bible tells us that we fall short of God's glory, and certainly we fall short of God's glory because of sin, but we fall short of God's glory because of all other reasons as well, all kinds of other reasons as well. And one of those is because we are frail, we are dust. And I think that this, this humility in our faith, this time, this season in doubt, can help us to help others in their seasons of doubt. Help us to walk alongside them. Help us to remember, when we're talking to unbelievers, what it's like to not believe. <laughs> and how scary that can be sometimes. How painful it can be to not believe, to wonder, is God real? I found in my own evangelism, I find the people I most like to do evangelism with are are individuals who are just skeptics. 
And I found that one of the most powerful things in that relationship, this isn't really, this isn't like a strategy or some kind of thing that I do. It's just, I like to identify with them in their skepticism. (laughs) And instead of coming to them and saying, hey, you know, I've got all the answers here, and why don't you just kind of line up and believe in them too? I just tell them all of the ways that I struggle to believe too. That's really where I start with them. And I tell them the different things that I struggle with, the different things that I doubt about, the different things that I don't believe. And then I tell them that I have found one who holds the words of eternal life. I have found the one who has risen from the dead. I have found the one who I can trust. And while all of my other doubts may be real, I stand on, his pers- on that person and on that work. Doubt can bring humility into our life. And I think that we as believers need to have humility as we approach unbelievers or those who are struggling with doubt. That we need to, as Jude says, be merciful with those who doubt. 1 Corinthians tells us that even the best of us see through a glass dimly. Even the very best of us see through this dusty and dirty glass. Doubt, unanswered questions, uncertainty, all of these things that all of us experience should remind us that we are dust, that we are frail, that we are finite and limited in our knowledge, that we cannot know fully and completely. We can know truly, but we cannot know fully and completely. The second benefit of doubt is that it should cause us to pursue the truth. There is nothing good about simply reveling in or being content in our doubt. Our doubt and unanswered questions are invitations from God to go deeper into the knowledge of who he is and about his care and his love for you. There really are these two different kinds of doubt. One kind of doubt that really fears the truth because of the commitment that it will require If you find out that the truth that God created everything or that Jesus rose from the dead, that demands some kind of commitment in response, right? Um, I've heard that agnostics are just atheists who have a fear of commitment. Okay, it's this tension, you know, I don't want to commit either way. I don't want to say there is a God. I don't want to say there's not a God. So I'll just kind of stay in this perpetual state of doubt because it feels safer. And we do that too. We often as Christians are agnostics in all sorts of ways in our life. And we don't commit and we don't, aren't willing to fall off the ladder, right? And place ourselves fully with Jesus. And so there is this kind of doubt that just kind of sits and is content with it. And that's not the kind of doubt that the Psalms talk about. And it's not the kind of doubt that I'm talking about today. The kind of doubt that I'm talking about today is a doubt that pursues the truth. The kind of doubt that doesn't come out of fear of the truth, but out of love for the truth. And out of desire to commit our lives to the truth. And I think that this is the kind of doubter that Thomas was. I will not believe unless I see. But when he sees, what does he do? (laughs) My Lord and my God. Thomas's doubt eventually ended with a great confession. My Lord and my God. 
This is the most complete and full confession that anyone gives in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Throughout the Gospel of John, John is, Jesus is communicating who he is. I am the one sent from the Father. I and the Father are one. Anyone who sees me has seen the Father who is in heaven. And here Thomas is the first one who gets it completely right. My Lord and my God. Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks and put my fingers where the nails were and shove my hand into his side, I will not believe. And Jesus appears to them again. And Thomas just doesn't even go touch him. <laughs> he lays aside his conditions that he gave. And he sees Jesus in the truth and he says, my Lord and my God, this is an incredible confession. It's a confession that is not grounded in a fear of commitment. It is a complete confession. You are my Lord. You are my God. It is a confession that speaks about the universal claim that Jesus is Lord and God. He confesses that that, that one who is standing there before him with nail-pierced hands and with a scarred side, that that one was present in the beginning. He confesses that this man who is standing before him, who was walking around with us for the last few years, this same one who hung on a cross, also spoke light and life into the whole world. Thomas's confession is that he is Lord. He is God. But Thomas says he is my Lord and my God. It is a universal confession, but it is very personal as well. The one standing before him is the Lord over his life. The one standing there with nail-pierced hands and a scarred side is one who knows him intimately and who died for him. The one who is standing there is the one to whom Thomas must bow. My Lord and my God. These things are written so that you might believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. John places Thomas's story right there before he gives his thesis statement for his entire gospel because Thomas's confession is what John's entire gospel was leading up to at that point. And it's the purpose of John's gospel for your life as well. That in your life that you would say, my Lord and my God to Jesus. And Thomas's story of doubt and of skepticism is given for all of you who find yourselves at times to be, or maybe at many times to be, a doubter and a skeptic. This morning, if you are a person who has questions and doubts, this book was written to you so that you may believe. And that by believing you may have life in his name. If you are a doubter and a skeptic, study the life of Thomas and the confession that he makes. Jesus gets the last word in this story. He says to Thomas, you have seen and have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet who still believe. This is the... Ryan Cochran paraphrase message version of this verse. Blessed of those, blessed are those of you who are not certain. Blessed are those of you who have doubts and questions. 
but still believe. Who still are willing to place your whole weight in the hands of Jesus. Who hear the gospel, the message of the cross, over and over again. And in spite of all of your doubts and your questions, you hear that story. You see the cross and you are drawn to it. You see the story of the greatest love that the world has ever known, and you are drawn to it. And you know that you want whatever love was expressed there. If you have doubts and questions about other things, but you are a person who is drawn to Jesus and who he is, the story of Thomas is for you. Because you can And the whole Bible tells us that doubts and uncertainty will be a part of your life. But Jesus wants you to lead you to a great confession. Confession that he is your Lord and your God. So blessed are you who do not see. Blessed are you who do have uncertainty and do have doubt, but who still believe and follow and trust in Jesus. Blessed are you. God in heaven, we thank you that you can be trusted with our doubts. We thank you that in the words of the Psalms and in the words of your disciples often, that we are shown that A real relationship with you has seasons of doubt as well as seasons of great certainty. And I pray that in both, that we, your people, would wrestle with you. That we would seek a relationship with you. And that in both our certainty as well as in our doubt, that we would know you as our Lord and our God. Amen.